As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast, well, I am really looking forward to sharing this episode with you. We're talking once again about Indigenous Australia. We're talking about a creation story that has been described as Australia's Book of Genesis. It's an epic saga, an epic story, the Australian Iliad, the Australian Odyssey, all of that. It's remarkable. And it's all to do with a new exhibition that is currently on in Plymouth at The Box called Songlines, Tracking the Seven Sisters. Now, it's the Seven Sisters story, the Seven Sisters Songlines, which is the focus of this great creation epic story of Indigenous Australia. And to talk through it all, to talk through the exhibition and why this story is so remarkable, so significant for the oldest continuous living culture on Earth, I was delighted a few weeks back to head over to a hotel in London to interview one of the curators of this new exhibition, Margot Neal. Margot, she was over from Australia for this exhibition. She was absolutely fantastic to chat to. She is a great personality. I really do hope you enjoy this podcast. It was so much fun to record. And without further ado, to talk all about songlines and tracking the Seven Sisters, here's Margot. Margot, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's absolutely my pleasure. This exhibition, yes. Songlines, this is groundbreaking. This mm. is this is unlike any exhibitions that I can think of that we've had in the UK before. Well, yes, this is what they all say, and I can only believe them. It was groundbreaking in Australia too. Of course, we have Aboriginal artists, very prominent Aboriginal issues, politics. It's more prominent. Oh, you get the odd um, Aboriginal exhibition about treaty or referendum or sovereignty or something of a more political nature. In the sort of visual mode, you get Aboriginal art and it says this sort of, almost in my view, a cultural cringe where it's got to be bigger and better and bolder than white art. So it's part of the contemporary art scene. So it's a big move, a big movement over many years. So the last 30 years to take it out of the ethnographic bark painting into this contemporary art. And now I would say it's pretty well eclipsed the art scene in Australia because when they want to represent Australia in any of the international fairs and documenters and things, it's invariably Aboriginal art 
or commentary on things, the Aboriginal, are what distinguishes us from Europe because the white art, and now the Indigenous too, is derivative, in fact. It is so distinct and the exhibition has proven so, so yeah. popular so far. I guess to start it all off though, if we focus on the background, mm. this whole word songlines, mm. what are songlines? Yeah, well, it's really interesting, as you probably know, Bruce Chatwin coined it, who's a British journalist. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah, it's 1987, and I noticed the book's on sale at the box. <laughs> so Bruce Chatwin was interested in sort of nomadic peoples. And, and we're not nomadic. We have a very distinct boundaries, but people didn't understand that then. So he went all around the world. He went to Australia for about 10, 12 weeks, and a long time zapped around the centre of Australia with a number of Aboriginal people and he coined the word songlines, which previous to that, white people were trying to get their head around this thing, this knowledge system that Aboriginal people had that guided them through life, you know, like some have the Bible and some have, you know, the Quran and what is it, what is it in Australia? Well, he came up with the idea of the songlines. Now, that was a perfect cross-cultural passport, Right. Everybody understood, in essence at least, because it's indefinable, you can't actually pin it down. And if you say to an Aboriginal person from the desert who's very actively involved the songline still, they'll just you say, what's a songline? The law. It's the law. But, but what is it? It's my dreaming. It's the law. That's about as far as you'll get. For my purposes, because I had to um, do an exhibition and translate it to some extent, I say you can... Um, visualise them as corridors or pathways of knowledge that crisscross the continent. So the whole continent is a land story. It is comprised of land stories. And it connects these lines that intersect and lay down over millennia, connect uh, natural features of significance, so sites of significance. Those sites look the way they look because of some ancestral activity that's taken place there. And it's in that story that all the knowledge about that place and that land, whether it be ecological, astronomical, because everything's reflected mm. in the night sky, of ancestral, historic, or even the social organisation, creation themes and the transmission of cultural values. So you can see they link and the more advanced in your years you become, the more of the song line that you have inherited, like we're going to talk about Seven Sisters, that's mm. a song line of many. Some are very big and they're epic, like Seven Sisters will traverse the entire continent. But, of course, in the colonised parts, people have remnant knowledges. And it also, the Seven Sisters actually does the whole world because... The Pleiades star cluster and the Orion constellation are visible in the northern and southern hemispheres. So Ireland had them, France, Japan. So all ancient peoples would have had a story about the Seven Sisters, whether they called it exactly that or not. Look at the Subaru as a star that's from the Pleiades. That's the Seven Sisters. I you get love, it? Yeah, I know. I absolutely <laughs> love that link. It doesn't matter if you're yeah. in the Southern Hemisphere or the Northern Hemisphere, yeah. how these ancient cultures, there is that link. And you look at astronomy and, yep. for instance, the hunter figure. Mm. You know, whether you're in ancient Greece or in Northern Hemisphere or you're in the Southern Hemisphere in Australia, 
that star cluster Mm-mm. is still the representation mm. of a hunter. Yes, exactly, space. a hunter. It's in very male and female. I mean, it's a, an epic saga that has a universal relevance and history. It, variations in the theme, but invariably, and like Orion in this story, is an ancestral hunter or a, a pursuer of the women wrongfully against the kinship rules of the Australian Aboriginal people who subscribe to the story, he is not the right man to be going after those girls. He's after the elder sister, she's smart, so she teaches the young ones how to avoid such dangers. And in the teaching, they learn about their marriage rules and male-female relations. It, it all comes out in the story, and in Australia, all these natural features are mnemonics. So when you go there, it's like you're a, a traveller, these days it'll be in Toyota, maybe even a drone, you know. They'll go to a site. It's almost like you go to a, li- a mobile library or a library. You deposit knowledge because you sing to it, you perform, you talk, and then you withdraw knowledge and then you become like a little mobile library that goes off to your people and you recapture it all. It's knowledge through is it performance, this idea that you're performing the knowledge mm. to others to teach them about it. Well, when you consider it, it's a non-text-based culture, as all ancient cultures were, the transmission was, of knowledge was through the body. So because it's a pre-non-text-based, not even pre-text, but non-text-based, it is an embodied knowledge system. And the most primary mode of transmission is through performance because you have not only body movements, you have nuances, voice, high, low, tonal, language, rhythm of music you have the complete package so you can transmit the knowledge in multiple multiple multi-sensory modes and you imagine if you saw a painting or a performance you remember that our neural pathways are designed to remember that but you would never remember a page of text in your Mm. textbook Mm. it's more engaging isn't it it's more engaging multi-sensory yeah absolutely yeah so one of these stories, well, I guess a collection of these stories yeah. that would have been told like this is, of course, one that's the focus of your exhibition, yeah. The Seven Sisters. Now, from what you've, you've said as we've chatted so far, it sounds like this story, it's this epic saga. There's always like this, this Troy, this Odyssey kind of thing, a great chase across mm. the continent. Mm. Well, you know, it's, it's, our, it's probably Australia's Iliad. Uh, Odyssey, you know, is that, what's it called? The Iliad? The Iliad and the Odyssey, Odyssey that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or others, others will say the, our book of Genesis. None of those quite fit it, of course, but it gives you a clue. And invariably, a lot of the ancient things are about a chase, an interaction, whether between warring tribes or brothers for supremacy or, or in this case, as I said, to the Seven Sisters story is in fact a... Um, it has to be a chase, it has to be exciting, it's got to have intrigue, drama, tragedy, sorrow, loss. Otherwise, how could you hold the story for 60,000 years if it's just, now listen here, young woman, mm. you are not to go out yet. It's none of that, right? It's all in the story. So you are eager to tell it and share it and laugh and chuckle and get scared around the campfire overnight, and you're just as eager to pass it on to another willing listener. Mm-hmm. So it just gets transmitted and leaks into you over time. It's not a lecture like Westerners would do. You get excommunicated. Anyway, so um, the story would be, is, you could put it like this, it's um, 
you know, an epic saga, clearly. All of these songlines also have local songlines as well, how to hunt the hot wallaby, how to get the fish, and you know. Mm. But these epic sagas, like the Seven Sisters, is a ancestral being or a sorcerer figure who takes a human form and in pursuit of these women, the eldest is the one he wants, it's the hardest to get because she knows what's going on, and it's wrong skin group, wrong kinship relationship. He's an older man. Not that that matters so much there. And in his, in order to lure them to him, in order to possess them, which they will say to make them his wives, he has to shapeshift. So shapeshifting is not a modern thing. <laughs> he had to shapeshift into all of the things that are necessary and critical for survival. In this case, in the desert, water, uh, what foods are in season, where they are, shade, so he turns into a tree, so they come under him and then he can consume them. And then the food, well, of course, there's all sorts of layers of meaning. So if, if they eat the snake that he turns into, then he enters them. And there's all of these sort of ways of possessing that have, in fact, sexual overtones as well as others. So in all of the stories at all of these sites, many of which were travelled, many of which are in that exhibition, and the paintings are the portals to place. They're the sites. This is why this exhibition is different, because you travel a song line, there's even a line, and you get to a painting that's some beautiful, stunning, big, red, round painting, and it's called Kunkurankupa or something, and then if you look at the floor, the bottom will tell you exactly where that site is, Walinga. And then so you actually can follow the song lines and go to that site, learn about it, engage with it, and then move on the song line to the next site. So the paintings have, you know, multiple purposes or functions. You can look at it just as a beautiful painting or you can go into it as a place. What's this place about? What do the Seven Sisters, what happened there between, in the encounter between what Inuru, or uh, it's called in some parts, and the Kungurankaba, the Seven Sisters, and what is there. Now, we'll show these are big red round painting. You can see the journey all through the APY lands in that painting. And also, I'm guessing, and this is one of the things which I think is most interesting at all, what's the lessons from it? As I say, you say it's not a lecture, a Western no. lecture as such, but included within these various stories of the greater Seven Sisters story, these epic, I guess, adventures, can I think? there are important lessons embedded within them mm. which are vital to the passing on of this knowledge. Mm. These elements of stories. It's all about got these, this caring for country at the end of the day. Well, the whole thing, as in all human existence, is about survival. And depending on the circumstances you find yourself in at any given epoch. So in the Australian deserts where these ones are set, three deserts, from the west of Australia right to the centre and kind of back to the lower part of Western Australia. They are definitely deserts. What you have to learn there is water, number one. <laughs> Where is it? And in some of these paintings, you'll see there are, um, there's a series of paintings there, what's called walker boards, and they will show you things like, in this waterhole called Witabula, the sisters saw the man coming on the horizon, so they had nowhere to go. So they dived under the waterhole and they travelled the arterial subterranean waterways and came up at bore number three. Now, what that says, when you're in that country, you know that story, you know you're not going to find water on the surface. Most likely you're going to have to, you have to bore for it. 
or there's what's called soakages. You, you recognise the area and you dig a bit and the water seeps through. So that's why they weren't swimming because they felt like holding their breath for an hour. And in the another one where they go from one songline in Western Australia to the other songline, they get to the end of it, he's too close for comfort, and so they fly. And they fly for 100 kilometres and they land at another songline in this story. Now, they're not flying because they want to feel the wind in the hair. They're flying because that story's telling you don't even try and walk across that 100 kilometres. There's no water. There's no shade. There's no... So every action is a story about survival. There's an important survival element embedded yeah. within. And that's the physical part. There's also all of the other, the social mores, and as you mentioned, caring for country, caring for each other and caring for country. So the story with this group of women is the elder sister's job is to teach the younger sisters about, the, and there are many risks in the desert, you know, to mitigate the risks of living in terms of the male-female relationships. I mean, there's small groups that live together for centuries, you know, so there's a lot of knowledge you need to... Um, Aboriginal people have an amazing... Aboriginal people in these places have this amazing way of conflict resolution, really sophisticated cultural diplomacy, rituals of diplomacy, and all these are in this story. Like when Wadi Nura goes to a cave, which is a dome, he chases them, they run into the cave and he rubs his hands, it's greatly hard, got them, right? And he waits and he waits and they don't come out and he sort of, he, he says to himself, what's wrong with me? I'm just a nice man, I just want to introduce myself proper way, why do they keep running? I have to chase them because they keep running. And he says, I just want to do it proper way, yeah? These are the protocols for introducing yourself. And then he looks down and he notices his footprint, he has only four toes, so that means he real, there's a moment of self-realisation, he's a sorcerer. That's why they're running. So he's got the conflict between reason and sexual need or whatever, gender, you know, the need for wives or something. So he's got the reason and emotion, I suppose. So there's all this, that whole story gets played out in all of these encounters. So it's the sister's, big sister's job to show us various ways to teach younger people how to behave and survive socially and morally and physically. And then at the same time, the country is the mother, you can't, the, the one that nurtures and keeps you alive. Therefore, you must care for country and keep the water holes clear and spiritually engage with country through performance and dance and keep it alive. Because there's a whole lot of stories about you go to an area and you do the right singing and, and put the song back into the country and the next lot who come along pull that song up and re-perform and put it back in the country and if that's not done regularly they say the country closes up and dies and you can't bring it back so this is why the people came to me and others to actually preserve this story because it only lives in the minds of these elders well you read where i was going to go next mm. like, talk to me about like how the, the whole <clears throat> exhibition came about because of course it's not just you there's a no, whole team of incredible team. people behind it yep you just need one mad one who's prepared to <laughs> go to so the logistics of this 
So, yes, so they, you know, a group of what we call Anangu, A-N-A-N-G-U, which are Aboriginal people of that place, they also have a separate language group. Anangu people had for some time been campaigning to get some of these Western institutions to help them preserve the song lines. And in one of these meetings, um, David Miller sort of leaned over the table and said, oh, you mob, you've got to... Our song line's all broken up and we need you to help us put them back together again. bit Humpty Dumpty, but it's the same idea. We need you. We can't do it ourselves because it's not only the mining and pastures and other incursions of colonialism, but it's their youth are too interested in the delights of the modern world and are not keen to go hanging out in country with the oldies and don't realise what they haven't got. And they said, well, look, we know when they're all married up and got kids, they want to know, but we'll be gone. And it's very critical. They'll really want to know. It doesn't matter how distracted they are now because their whole identity is invested in these places. Their whole raison d'etre, you know, which they'll get. And then when they have children, they want to tell them where they're from or where their place is and who the, what the stories are and what their responsibilities are. They won't know. So they'll be kind of like orphaned in finding a place. There's no such thing as an Aboriginal orphan because they all know their place, you know. So the really good thing about this, instead of throwing their arms up in despair, they were very um, proactive and strategic and said, well, we'll meet them in the digital domain. They won't come to us, we'll go to them. So the journey was a preservation journey and there were recordings, songs sung, performances done, which a lot of them had to regenerate. They had to, you know, negotiate, and there's a lot of, not, not like it was on the tip of everyone's tongue. They'd go to a place and then stimulate stuff, and they'd have dreams, and then they'd talk to each other. So it was recorded orally, film, paintings, and so on, and, and text. So all of it was recorded and to be deposited in a, Aboriginal managed archive called Araeriticha in Alice Springs and that's a Aboriginal managed archive is another story because it's opposite to our western libraries yes. where it's democratic anyone can access anything here only if you can prove your lineage to that story so it's very subjective whereas the western archive is objective so I'm guessing, like, let's say, sourcing the objects, the artefacts for this exhibition, mm. it's very different to, let's say, an exhibition where, let's say, we're going to talk about ancient Rome, ancient Greece, have a talk with a museum out in Italy or Greece or wherever yeah. and get the artefacts. For this exhibition, talk me through, like, the for the objects that are on display, the paintings, the sculptures, the ceramics, it was a wholly very different process. Yeah, entirely, because there's absolutely no roadmap for this, none. There are many times I thought, oh, this... It will never end. You know, the song lines never end. The story will never end. There is no end. So, except money. Or <laughs> <laughs> time. But they always think you can get more. Oh, you're going to have that government. He'll give you more money. No, you know, like, well, they've got more money. So there's no sense of money as in the Western sense. So what happened is, you know, I called it a curatorium, right? That I and them are curators together. They've got the knowledge. They've got the stories and the content. I've got the capacity to choreograph it into a Western institution for the purposes of audience consumption, if you like. So we have to travel. They said, we've got to go to Kurala, and then we go there, and this is what happened here. That's a big rock face, because our history story is written in the land. That's a classic example. Anyone can see that that's a personage. 
So there was paintings done, performances done, films made, stories told. We camped there and out of that comes painting started there, finished elsewhere and more were spawned as a consequence of that visit. And then there'd be other similar places like Cave Hill, which is Wollinga, which is what that dome is. That's what's in the dome. So you basically go to all of these places. They say, this is where we need to go. This is what we need to do. You record it. So what you're doing is a ground proofing for future proofing. That's how I see it. This is definitely on the ground. No running alone to little collections elsewhere. This is about reconnecting with the archive of knowledge for depositing and for preservation purposes. So there's no end to that. We went on one trip with 10 Toyotas. I can't tell you the cost. 10 Toyotas, 30 people of 20 at least of very advanced years with various health issues, 600 kilometres, 10 days, no roads satellite phones and then we go to they say we're going to go to Bangor so we all get there unload the Toyotas we say what has to be recorded ah no no photos why not Daisy got off the bus she speaks for this country no one else here can speak for that and then you go to another place well better go look at punk or something and you get there and someone said oh no that's Bill's country we can't speak for that and so you can do a whole trip and come back with, well, paintings around the campfire, strengthened relationships, people who are singing and talking, dancing, a lot of stuff, but not what the intention of the trip was. It can be entirely different. All the young people there who are on this one particular one, Māru one, were rangers, so they got to learn the knowledge of the land. But in terms of the exhibition, there wasn't much out of the $100,000 it took. So this is what can happen. That's why it's, there's no roadmap. You can't apply a strict Western structure or timeline and a Gantt chart to this sort of thing. So I'm the meat in the sandwich, in a way. There's no roadmap. Certain people can only talk about certain places. Yes. And this is why it's so important in your exhibition that you, in the digital age, mm. you feature these traditional custodians. They talk you through the story in yep. this exhibition. Yes, yeah, so once you understand, as we've just discussed, the genesis of this exhibition, of this project, rather, of this heritage preservation project, once you understand the genesis of it, and you really do get it, then all the other things that happened, like what you see there, is just a natural outgrowth. Now, if I hadn't not been Indigenous and not understood that this isn't a Western experience, although it will be, but we need the Westerners to help save the songlines. We need the money and the political will and all that. Because you may well say, well, why have an exhibition? All the stuff saved into the archive. We had an exhibition very clear. And my reading is that they needed everyone to feel part of this songlines in order to have the political will to help preserve it for future. They needed to feel the responsibility of saving this Australian heritage in the same way they might save Captain Cook's cottage. So they got that, plus good party, see the stuff, like showing off, sell paintings, lots of other things. But the real thing is, I realised, because what I got out of it at the end was that they're basically saying to Australians, and you can extrapolate that to the world, but in Australia they were basically saying, we're not here to share our stories with you, we're here to tell you your stories, because if you're going to live in this continent and you call this home, you've got to know your stories beyond 250 years. Otherwise, 
you'll only ever be a transplant. You'll never take root. Mm. And the same thing, you can extrapolate to the universal here. These are world heritage stories. They belong to you too. You live on this planet. We're all in this together. So it becomes very relevant, as you know, to the age of pandemics and wildfires and pestilence and environmental degradation and climate change. It's all the wayfinders are all in that exhibition. Once again, stressing that universal importance yes. of it, isn't it? Very much so. There's a quote in there that you've seen in the prospectus. And I say innocently and early, because it was 10 years ago now, I said it's not an art exhibition, it's not a science exhibition, it's not a history exhibition, it's all of these, and it's not only an Aboriginal history, it's a world history, and it's about how to care for each other and this planet in a fragmenting world. That sort of well sums it up. There we go, back to caring for country. Caring I for to, country. Um, yeah. I chatted to Dave Johnston a few weeks back and he was just like, Oh, the archaeologist? About, absolutely, Oh, yeah. my mate from Canberra. Well, wonderful. Yeah, he sends his best. He was, it's always about caring <laughs> oh, for country. What does that look like? In a Western mind, it's about ownership. Or, it doesn't mean you don't care for it, but you're only dealing with the superficial yeah, I think it is kind of, you, and I think you mentioned like the words like wildfires and stuff mm. like that, and it's more like a, and of course, with the company talking about climate change, and we've just had COP26. So I think in a Westerner's point of view, at least in my point of view, that's immediately what comes to mind. It's like mm. looking after the environment, thinking about generations ahead and what's going to happen. But that's my approach. Is it a bit different? In well, I think what, I don't think there's any doubt, Now I've heard it many times, there's now a hunger for looking at how Indigenous people did it. How did... Australian Aboriginal people live on a, a very harsh continent of huge extremes for 65,000 years and kept it healthy. And many of the answers are in this book. There's a series called First Australians. That's the first of them. And then there's one on building on country design. And then there's this one, Country, Future Fire, Future Farming. And there's a whole series. And they will tell you how. What did Tudor men like their women to look like? They should have broad shoulders, fleshy arms, fleshy legs and broad hips. What did 17th century Londoners think of coffee? A syrup of soot and the essence of old shoes. And what did executioners wear? A lot of these guys, they were clothes horses because it's a big public spectacle. All the eyes are on you. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from monasteries to the Medici, sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Eleanor Yanaga. And I'm Matt Lewis. And all this month on Gone Medieval, we're delving deep into the pivotal moment that shaped the destiny of England, the Battle of Hastings. Three men struggle for supremacy. The Saxon king, Harold Godwinson. The Viking warlord, Harold Hardrada. And the ambitious Norman duke, William the Conqueror. So join me, Eleanor Yanaga. And me, Matt Lewis, for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. 
All right, Ancients listeners, I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my fellow history hit podcast host, Don Wildman, and is direct audio from the hit TV show, Mysteries at the Museum. Now on Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find the objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history, and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. What I love about this podcast is that it's a deep dive into specific objects, revealing the amazing stories they can tell about a person, about a place, or a time in history. It's the detail and laser focus that really resonates with me. Listen to Mysteries at the Museum wherever you get your podcasts. There we go. We've got that knowledge right <clears throat> yep. there now. So we've we got know. our knowledge in books now. In fact, the old Inuit elder once said to me, you know, trouble with those white fellas? They just keep all their brains in books. No wonder they get trouble. <laughs> well, you know, as you're bringing this exhibition into the digital yeah, age, yes. you're bringing it into the, the literature age as well. Well, so well we need, just, I think, multiple platforms now. Clearly, mm. the oral alone isn't going to work anymore. It's got to include multiple platforms. So once you know the genesis of this exhibition it's the urgent plea to save the song lines as the heritage of the continent and the health of the continent then it was very clear that the elders the custodians of the places that we were talking about in this exhibition as case studies because you can extrapolate clearly had to be in that exhibition ideally they should be there touring right they're there peopling the show and telling people and sharing knowledge and also making people feel included, not voyeuristic. Many highly sensitive white fellas feel very voyeuristic going through Aboriginal shows, peeping into people's stories and lives. So this is both, most of the comments are always, it's transformative and I've never felt so included. Now that's because they're there and they, there's no way you could make the point that this isn't a museum's exhibition without them there, none. So it became obvious to me, just the last minute, in fact, that they were there for a final meeting, and I said, they've got to be there. So we did these virtual elders, as you'll see. There's a welcome at the front. There's um, six screens, life-size, and they morph into each other. So 12 or 13 people, elders are there saying, come on in, come and see this. This is for the whole world. This is yours. This is," And they indicate, so you get welcome by, which is a reference also to an Aboriginal an Australian protocol, anything Aboriginal, you are, any event, you are welcome to country welcome by to those country. whose country it is, or not the country of those whose country it is is acknowledged. So this is, you know, a nod to our, the protocol, and a total acknowledgement of it's their stories, their country, their project, and the museum has facilitated this exhibition. And then, of course, you need to break down the idea of a homogenous Aboriginality. Like there are three deserts there and there's three different sets of people. They don't even know what happened to the Seven Sisters after it leaves their desert or what happened to them before because that's not the knowledge they need to survive on their patch of desert. So it was clear to say that each of the three deserts has an elder whose stories are in that desert 
and and then when you move to the second part of the another part of desert then you welcome by yet a different person so it also sublimity teaches you the variegation and breaks down any sense of homogenization of Aboriginal peoples and therefore I made them part of the call them the curatorium so they're not an advisory group or a reference group the curators with me and let's then keep on the exhibition mm. and if we talk about the paintings in these various mm. galleries because these paintings once you've had the welcome to country or the, the acknowledgement of country uh, they form a central part of telling the story mm. in this exhibition the visitor sort of virtually travels we picked out a number of song lines in each of the three deserts so you walk 600 kilometers of a song line in 20 50 meters and each of the staging posts are the paintings which are the places which tell you a story of what happened the encounter between the lustful pursuer and the seven sisters and then the knowledge that comes at what you learn from that and you do that along one song line and then another song line and as the environment and country changes although from the outside it looks like all deserts some are very rocky and some are very sand uni and some are very they're all different and so these stories always change according to the nature of the environment and that's how you know how to care for country you need to know your country that's with the paintings there's one particularly good one called Yakalpa, mm. a hunting ground, which is a monster, five by three metres, luminous painting. And that painting is selected because it is an encyclopaedia of ecological and other knowledge. The eight elder women painted that to teach the young rangers about that piece of country in Mardu country in West Australia. And it is... The documentation that goes with it, and the seven sisters are seen there flittering across the top and then they're seen somewhere else, but it's about these are the mosaic burning of the bush that we do to maintain so there's no wildfire. So there's hot burns, cold burns, human burns, natural burns. When it's black, like these patches, you can see that it's good for hunting going because you can see their marks through the black. And when it's white, that's when the ashes are sort of blown away to show the black. And then when it's green, that's when the new shoots are and that's when the kangaroos come. And when that happens up there where the coolabar trees are, the wetland is full of water and the witchery grubs are fat. And over here, and it goes on and on right through this painting, it has this legend that goes with it that we can put into text. But when the old women are doing this over 10 days, they are teaching everything. If there's a community camp, everything is in this map, which is cartographically correct because I know the country so intimately, but that's not the real thing. So it is a, an archive of knowledge. And in the exhibition, that painting is, there's a time-lapse photography of that being painted from the beginning to the end. And you see the women moving across the surface of the canvas, which is always on the ground. Mm. So it ceases to be about country. It is country. And you sort of breathing skin of country and they walk on it and sleep on it and sit on it and, and it becomes country. And over those 10 days, they live on this canvas, basically. I was going to ask, I was going to be, you know, how do they actually paint this? But mm. as it said, it's not on a... A stencil or something like that. This is on the floor. That's, yeah, all, just about all Aboriginal paintings from these remote regions are done 
on the floor because they're doing country on country. And the other thing that might be interesting for people is most of these paintings are not undercoated with white, they're undercoated with black. Because when painting started, people used to putting body painting, so they more familiar oh, with putting it on black, not white. Uh, that Yakopa painting is astonishing, like the, the size of it and the, amount, the m- several messages that mm. are conveyed through it. One other which I always found actually really interesting from one of your talks before chatting today was the one which has an interesting link to JFK. Oh, yes. What is this piece of artwork? Yes, there's a rock hole called Bungal Rock Hole, and again, it's in Māori country in Western Australia. The women who were telling us, they were talking about this painting, and they said, oh, yeah, them sisters, they fly from this way, and they're tired, they have to land, and they saw this water, so they thought they might land there. And then they realised it's a man's place, so they couldn't land there, had to land at the hill behind it. And while they were talking, one of them said, oh, yeah, and we said, oh, like, when was that? Or, which is a question you can't ask, really, because... That's not Western linear time. Whatever happened, it extracted a comment like, oh, you know, that happened when that big boss man from America was killed by his own people. That's when it happened. I said, what? That's 1963. We thought we are talking about these ancestral, which, of course, we are. in their mind, it's an ongoing story. It, it's not then and now. There's always equivalences to now in these stories. So they said, no, that, you know, when that man and this man in that Toyota came and he grabbed us people and us girls and he put us in that truck. And I said, where did he take it? To Jigalong Mission. You know, <laughs> what thing we do? Yeah, Jigalong Mission, that's where he took us. And then, of course, historically speaking, what happened was that when they were doing the nuclear tests, the atomic tests, rather, Maralinga, and so the welfare, NT, welfare officers were clearing the deserts of Aboriginal people because of the fallout, mm. and they'd taken him off to these missions. So the story totally morphs into the Seven Sisters. There's a mob of sisters, been grabbed by a fella, taken away. Mm. Same story. Same lessons. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So this is the contemporary nature of ancient stories in modern times. You know, I can't speak for Greek and Rome, but my feeling is it doesn't do that. Yeah, it's very much now with Greek and Roman is that you tell the story and this is what's said by then. this. This is what happened then. This is what they believed or this is what the ancient yeah. writer has said. But this one continues to have contemporary relevance because of the stories, the information embedded within. Yes, it's continuing culture and the um, cultural values are the same and practice as best as possible in, in changing circumstances. But this happened a lot, this conflation that what a Westerner from outside would say is a conflation. In the minds of these particular women, it was just the seven sisters doing their thing. And they're just living the story, <laughs> living the dream. Living the dream, <laughs> there we go, the dreaming. Yeah. Now, Margot, you did mention it earlier, so I'd like to go back mm. to it now. And this is a key part of the exhibition, which seems to be very interesting based on the material culture for the seven sisters. And this is the dome. Mm. What is the dome? The dome actually replicates a significant rock art cave, a site in the APY lands that's not close to Uluru for those who need to locate it. And it's a very significant part of the story, both of what the places before and the places after, which are all included in the paintings. But at this cave, called Cave Hill Bobawillinga, Aboriginal Way, old Douglas Stanley and his family are the current custodians. And in this cave, it's got, well, 
I'd be right to say the only Seven Sisters rock art paintings in the world. Love to be corrected, and they're in pretty good condition. And the cast, old Douglas Stanley's family took us up there, and we could see what Inuru depicted with the big hat and too many toes or too few toes and the women running all those little yellow footprints that are in the exhibition to guide people around to there. And so in this cave, this is the cave that I mentioned to you before where what he, it was a moment of realisation that he wasn't actually a man. This is where he stood and he all those critical points in the story of where he realised he wasn't who he thought he was but reason and emotion conflicted. And so we have the cave, so you can go and lie in there and be immersed or transported, if you like, to this to the desert and hear the story. And it's very ambient. You hear the old fella's voice echoing. And then it is also used as a didactic place, as rock art caves are for the people. Uh, five paintings are animated and the story is repeated from each of the three lands. So there's multiple variations on how to access the story. As it is in Aboriginal culture, the same story is told in repeated and varied ways to reinforce. So that's happening in the cave and it's also uh, reinforcing the embodied experience. So you too as a visitor get to learn this in an embodied way and always people stay three times as long as they mean to because they don't. it's embodied, it's not boring. You look up into a cave, you look down for projections on the floor, you look, you know, there's multiple, there's another part, the beginning, which we call walking through a song line, which is an immersive digital thing with snakes running around and so on. So there's heaps of, and it is subliminally intended to replicate the idea of embodied learning. Now, you mentioned snakes there. Mm. Actually, that's, that's something I actually also wanted to talk about. Mm. Is because the snake, the whole snake motif, mm. that also seems to feature quite heavily mm. in the exhibition. And why is mm. that? Well, every every civilization invariably has the snake to represent risk, danger, masculinity, temptation. So Garden of Eden, classic. A lot of the Asian religions have the hydra, the Greeks mm. of the Greek with the hydra, snake heads with the multiple snakes. A Medusa. Medusa. So the snake is, again, a universal symbol across all cultures and all times as being potential risk or temptation. And it is this here because the pursuer changes into a snake in order to lure the women into an edible carpet snake. And the story in a few places, you'll see it where they grab it, they want to eat it, and they see, well, this is behaving strangely, we won't, and they throw it into the sky. And then another site somewhere else, because it's not a linear story, another one they get it and they do eat it and they're sick for three days and they know, they then know that that kind of snake you don't eat, mm. it'll make you sick. So you learn the pragmatic stuff, but in the story it's, it's he managed to succeed for five minutes. We introduce it very early, it's a sort of recurring motif. It represents as a red room there called Wadi Nuru Room, the man's, like the man's room, to acknowledge the role of males in this. And it's fire engine red and it's got a whole lot of writhing snakes on the wall and spears and the red and the snakes and spears reinforcing that this is the role of Wadi Nuru, the man in this saga, passion, danger, that kind of thing. 
the men are represented in the exhibition yeah. and also the sisters too. Is there a separate room for the representing of the sisters? Yes, and it's to also impart, albeit maybe subliminally, or that's in the text probably, is that Aboriginal society is a gendered society. The landscape's gendered, the animal species, everything is gendered because another way of surviving in life was that everyone was very clear about their roles. This wasn't a matter of equality, and I think we may go too far down that track ourselves. It wasn't a question of equality. It was a question of same but different or what we call complementary roles. There's certain things that every story, which may be predominantly a female story or predominantly a male story, there'll always be a male or a female component. In it. So it's very important to impose this. So you hear women's business, men's business, you'll hear seven sister story, there's an assumption. You know, I'd have people who don't understand who are naive and say, well, how can you have a man in there if it's a woman's story? Or why are you having a man speaking at the opening if it's a woman's story? Well, it is the women who are telling it. It's predominantly their story, but it's all about a man chasing them. But so in some way he's playing a minor role, but in another way he's the most active agent. So, you know, you can't give it an equality thing, it's a complementary role and that's replicated in your ways of being and knowing and working to keep alive. And it's quite interesting in the whole the whole exhibition, the layout, if I'm correct in this, how Wadiniro, he's almost, for instance, with the ceramics, the pots, mm. he's there. Mm. He's not with the Seven Sisters, no. but he's there. He's, he's always the lurking. Mm. <laughs> right from the start, the first thing you see, well, first you go through this, what we call walking through a song line, where the snake rides around and the desert, it's a transition zone from the outside world into this desert landscape we're taking you into. So it's got Google Earth shows you the kind of land and then the see the snake, writhing around and it runs over kids and they chase it up walls and all the seven sisters steps running away and then the rain comes and then the flowers bloom and so it gives you that thing and of course he reappears in a human form as soon as you enter the exhibition as a group of the seven sisters and him sitting in the corner always watching 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 and they always huddle huddle it recurs throughout and when you get to the pots well there's the red room i just told you about well, I made a blue room. I don't know why the colour. Red, I know why red, but blue is just because the pots, it was a calm room. And this lady called one of the traditional custodians from the APY land, that's towards the centre of Australia for your listeners, Alison Millica Carroll, her name is, and she said to her granddaughter one day, go get me some monka leaves, right? And the girl goes, duh, as they do. Then she realised this is no good. If they don't know the language name for this bush foods and bush tuckers and stuff, they'll never know anything about them because in the language word comes the knowledge. So she talked to the elders at the art centre at Ernabella, who specialises in ceramics, and there's a quote in the exhibition that says, who has all the intimate knowledge of the land as they travel the land of the plants of the animals of the water who knows the seven sisters of course so she taught them knowledge of country and flora and fauna through the seven sisters so there's seven pots for seven sisters each pot is one of the shape shifting that what Inuru does so one's a witchetty grub one's a bush tomato and another's a honey ant and water and all the things are seven of his transformations in order to 
lure the sisters, so they taught through the pots, <laughs> through the story. There you go. So it sounds as if we've got so we've got paintings, we've got ceramics, we've got uh, sculptures such as that snake motif which you mentioned earlier, and the and the weapons, for instance. Mm. One last thing before we start wrapping up, mm. and you actually did mention it there, is this last part, which is the, this art centre hub. Mm. Now, why is this an important part of the exhibition? We don't want people to think there's all these exotic people dotted around the desert, sitting out under trees in the desert, painting these magnificent canvases, you know, like on an easel probably, because that's not how it is. That's their country, that's their responsibility. But all of these communities dotted around the desert and further forward have an art, what's called an art centre. It's a sort of like a cultural hub, government-funded, owned by the Aboriginal people of that place, the artists who choose to be artists. They are the owners and they bring in managers who know how to sell to the marketplace, the interface. So these art centres, of which we have reproduced one in the exhibition, but it's over the road at the Art Institute, shows you they're sort of messy, active, there's dogs and there's all sorts of stuff and all the women, mostly women, men go too, but mostly women, they just go there every day, sit, talk, yarn, have cups of tea, sort out brawls, talk money story and paint. And then this, the art centre, art advisors, then connect. It has both an economic value, plus it's a teaching place, you know, and it gives them some economic independence and some become star artists and big mobs of money come in. There's all sorts of brawls about that. And then um, I've suggested then to make it all these, to make it so that the museums invariably have a, a retail outlet, gift shop. They always have public programs and they have education for kids. So I said, well, make your retail outfit a art centre. And here they didn't manage it because they weren't allowed to sell stuff out of it or something. But it's over the road, you can see it, and there's lots of slide shows of the art centres in operation. But in Australia we had, and oh boy, the retail people said they've never sold so much. <laughs> can you imagine walking halfway through the exhibition, being totally engaged, walking to a space where you can flip through or paintings that look like them mm. in there, you just got to take them home. Mm. So it's in the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Marketing galore. There you I go. I know it's a great uh, way. So to... just a themed re- it could be either replicate art centre, a themed retail museum centre. It's both. <laughs> I have to get you on the marketing podcast. And yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. As we start to wrap up now, this was a great chat. But just before we talk about the exhibition itself, going and seeing the exhibition, how people can go and see that. Once again, I know we talked about it already, but just to, to wrap up. Explain to us why this exhibition is so so unique, so universally important, so significant, why it's so important to keep these stories alive. Well, it's important on multiple fronts. Clearly for the people who made the urgent plea to help us, to get us to help them keep the song lines alive for future posterity. But in a universal level, clearly within this sort of exhibition, which is a, a reflection of the Aboriginal culture and the practices and knowledges that kept the culture alive or kept the country alive and healthy for 65,000 years, in there lies the answers to our current dilemma. Now, Westerners being as they are, I had to just push things to the brink and exploit and use and greed and, and the Aboriginal values are not that. 
So somewhere in this, it's very clear what the practices are to keep countries safe and alive. And many people are bringing them in, even the idea of recycling, you know, all the modern concepts that people have had to come to through by hitting the wall. This show wasn't set up to do that, but it just by coincidence or not coincidence, I don't quite know what the word is, but if this exhibition was around 10 or 15 years ago, I don't think it would have resonated with so many people so deeply. I think right now at the Roman Biodiversity Conference in Rome and Glasgow and the wildfires and all the things, that the virus was a classic. There were just natural mechanisms in place, ancient systems of dealing with the elements in the world that people will absolutely see in this show that they may not have seen 15 years ago. Well, there you go. And last but not least, how can people come about and well, go and see your show in the UK? Easy. Catch a train to Plymouth. Fantastic. <laughs> but I did mean to say, also, I think people need to realise that we are now a one world and that Indigenous people need to be understood and appreciated and be seen as much mainstream, not a minority, but everything they have to say is, belongs to everybody. And Margot, also this exhibition, it's on until early 2022. It's um, 25th of February and whatever you do, never leave it to the last week, ever. It's a word of mouth exhibition, my experience is now the third venue. In the last week, the word of mouth catches up and they're all queuing up to it and you, it's better to have a bit of space when you experience this exhibition. So you've got until then but make it towards the end of January, early February, I would suggest. I'll get it in my diary now because I yes. do need to go and have a look. I mean, is it going anywhere else in the world after oh, the Oh, yes, UK? it goes to, it yeah, go, this is the premiere for the European tour, Plymouth. Ah. After Plymouth, it goes to the Humboldt Forum in Berlin, which is, you know, state-of-the-art, like Plymouth, newly opened. And then it goes to Quiberon Lee in Paris. And then we're aiming for it to go on to the North America, I'm hoping for New York or Seattle or somewhere, and then it has Canada, Finland. They're all sort of in the negotiation phase. So the great thing for Plymouth, England, is, you know, who would have thought you'd put Plymouth, Paris, Berlin, <laughs> all in the same sentence, and it isn't missed on them either. So you'd be crazy not to go while it's here because it is a rare treat indeed to have something of such a scale that's doing a European and North American tour to be in your backyard, basically. I think you're so right. We're very blessed in the UK yeah. of having a, a, a plethora of amazing exhibitions. Mm. So, yeah, as you say, rare treat, need to go and see. Yes. Of course, Plymouth. Do you know the significance of Plymouth? Do you? Well, I was thinking Mayflower, but that's for North America. Mm. What is the Captain significance? Cook. Captain the Endeavour. Is he it's set from Plymouth, did it? Yes, ah. and all the journeys that went to Australia, <laughs> the Cornish miners, I heard something like 400,000 Brits left Plymouth for Australia and um, over the years. And also, as I said, in somewhere else, it's the other significance beyond what I've just said is that, you know, it's like the Empire Strikes Back. You know how the Brits came over to, to colonise and civilise our people 250 years ago. Well, it didn't work, obviously. So this show is here to show you how to civilise sustainably. And, of course, it's sort of nature strikes back as well. It's, it 
sort of an example of our moment. Margot, I can't wait to go and see the exhibition. It sounds great. And last but certainly not least, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for taking such an interest. You've obviously done your homework. Oh, thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have and are looking for more fascinating Ancients content, I mean, of course you are, then why not subscribe to our new Ancients newsletter at the link in the description below. See you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.